Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute, giving you insights from industry experts to supercharge your marketing skills. Today is the modern mindset, where we explore those soft skills that are so vital to develop in your career. I'm Will Francis, and I'll be talking to Orla Nugent and Declan Power, who both work to help others improve their leadership skills. Orla teaches project management, coaching and leadership, drawing on many years of experience in senior roles in both public and private organisations. Declan's experience is in security and the military, where he shows people who operate in sometimes extreme circumstances how to lead, survive and succeed. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank Thank you. Um, you are clearly both um, experts, great experts in leadership, and it's your job to tell people how to be leaders. But you are leaders yourself. What What is leadership to you in your career, Orla? Um, that's an interesting question. It's making me think. Yeah. Um, so what is leadership to me in my career? Um, I, I suppose it's a combination of a position um, and it's a combination of position and generating or inspiring others to work with me towards a goal. And that goal might be multifaceted. So it might be short, it, you know, there's probably a short term win, but there's probably a, a multi-year goal at the end of it. So, sorry, now Will, I've that's a, back. My no, brain that's is a perfect, actually. Okay. It's a really nicely crystallised explanation okay. of what leadership is. It's great. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so it's a mixture of your position. But the other thing I'd say, though, as well, and, and I'm just thinking about leadership and career, is taking the opportunity to actually do something beyond your comfort zone. So that's demonstrating, I suppose, a desire to expand our knowledge and my expertise. And that's probably how I would have developed my career in terms of taking on projects that were beyond me, um, either putting my hand up to them or being tapped on the shoulder and, and asked to go for them. Um, and then by doing that, building my confidence and my credibility. So you, you're saying that you've grown as a leader through basically being pushed to new challenges. Yeah. And or pushing myself to new challenges. Yeah, because that's not something I suppose we traditionally think about with leadership, is it? We just think it's a role and it's about organising and um, delegating. Yeah, and I suppose, so I'm an engineer, so my career to start out with would have been a programmer, very technical. Um, and then as you progress and you get better at it, you get, you know, tapped on the shoulder to lead, maybe be a team leader in a small team. But I suppose over time, I realised that I preferred working with people than computers and, and I preferred that engagement piece. So that was, I suppose, a natural choice for me to just work with people and then work with larger teams as I went along. So a lot of my learning was done on the job, so to speak, and learning from my managers and my bosses, having mentors, even though I didn't know what a mentor was, but looking to people who could advise me or give me insight to how I was doing stuff and getting feedback. So a lot of scars. Um, but a lot of positive experiences as well that then buoy you up and, and give you that confidence to, to, to try the next challenge. Declan, you offer insight from your background in defence, the military world, um, to help people develop their own leadership skills. But how do you employ leadership in your job? Yeah, I think I employ it in, uh, differently according to the objectives required. And that has been fundamental to my experience of it as well. So while you know the military is a big part of my formation, um, 
you know, I, it's not, I, I'm not, I haven't been an entire career uh, within the military. It was something that laid a lot of good building blocks. You know, I wasn't at a terribly uh, high level within it, but because of the work I did and the particular roles I found myself thrown into, I was working with people at a very high level. And that gave me an insight into leadership, uh, both at a formal and informal basis. Uh, and that's where I began to learn about the whole idea that a, a hugely authoritative institution couldn't rely on that totally. And there were lots of different models and roles. And I learned from the people in those environments. Um, for just one simple takeaway was I, I, I realised how motivational it can be if you get somebody who has rank, but who doesn't rely on it hugely, and who leads his team by making people feel that he's working with them rather mm. than they're working for him so that you become invested and you would get individuals of all ranks who would put in long hours because they were all invested in the objective because they all felt they had helped create the the way to attain it and that that really resonated with me and I think and I think anybody listening out there who has been in the military will understand this it leaves us with a foundation uh, you don't have to have been a general to have learned how to lead now I learned the principles of leadership at small unit and and slightly large unit level in the military college but it was be engaging in being mentored that really gave me the foundation. And then when I went out of the military, I got the opportunity to lead at a, a, on a bigger canvas. You know, you're either going to, if you either stay in the military where you climb up the, lang- the ranks and it's a pyramid, or you can get out. And those of us who got out uh, at a reasonably young age, after 10 or 12 years, found that the doors would open because we were using the lessons we had learned. And so I found myself then in leadership roles, in more formal leadership roles abroad, sometimes in a context, as I said earlier, with the UN service and and on some related projects. And then I found you couldn't rely totally on the the corporate or military type structure because you had these myriads of people with different cultures and backgrounds. And you had to go from being a formal to informal leader you, you, and you utilised every tool that you had, that you had learnt and you learnt along the way and it, that experience, particularly abroad, m- working with a mixture of, of, of cultures, made me quite adaptable I think and it taught me lessons and it taught me that I couldn't rely on, on the typical uh, things that people think, you know, the, mis- it, it taught me how not to mistake management for leadership Yeah, and, and, and you know, you you guys have mentioned some kind of uh, management and leadership frameworks. I mean, what came first for you? Did you formalize your kind of organic understanding of leadership that you developed over the years with though with that more with the kind of academic stuff? Or did you have to kind of learn it from textbooks to some degree? Well, Certainly, when I was uh, when I was in the military college, like all, all cadets are taught about, um, you know, the principles of leadership, uh, but a lot of that doesn't seem real, and it's very you know textbook stuff. Yes. And it wasn't, and, and there was a lot of other things as well. And I've often had this conversation with with former comrades uh, at reunions and things. Ten, fifteen, sometimes twenty years later, some of those principles would then make sense. You'd find you had stored them away, and they would come out for use in the most unusual ways. So I think it's a combination. You, you learn by doing. Um, you, you know, you're not anything when you have 
attained a qualification. You have a framework. And then it's by doing and applying it that you actually learn. So that's where the mentoring uh, comes in, the personalities you meet. One of the things we talked about in the webinar, uh, Orla mentioned it, I'm trying to remember, you know, the the uh, me- we we talked about it as mentoring, but there was um, the sponsor, was it? yes, yeah, and the importance there of the the, the role modelling as well, yeah, role modelling, yeah, and role modelling I think was hugely important for me, and that's how I learned an awful lot. But there's a lot of things that you can learn in a formal textbook setting that you won't often remember uh, until you've gone through this process. And the role modelling and the experience of sort of like the old fashioned apprenticeship. And I there's two there's three key personalities I can think of. Uh, some who were in the military, some who weren't, who formed that role with me. And I think everybody in their journey towards attaining leadership skills and abilities needs to have that kind of relationship. And I think for this has become particularly important is the advancement of women in the workforce into leadership positions. You know, women are traditionally known to be very good at, you know, conventional learning and do very well in university. And people ask the question, why does that, those high marks attained in in school and university not translate into high positions in the workforce? Now, part of that we all know is to do with the fact that women also are the primary, tend to be the primary caregivers and they're, they're juggling and they're making value judgments. But also it was because there wasn't this mentoring, informal mentoring, and that's been addressed now. I think you'd know more about that, Orla, at this point. Yeah, so I think I would say that sponsoring is actually more important than mentoring. So mentoring is a great way to learn, but if you you need somebody to sponsor you in an organisation. What does that mean? What does that look like? Okay, so what that means is there's somebody um, higher up in the organisation who's at the decision-making table so that when choices are being made about opportunities or promotions, that they know who you are, what you're about, what you've achieved and what you can contribute. So your name goes into the pot. So you're part of the conversation. So you're effectively in the room, but via that sponsor. So it could be a mentor or a sponsor, but the sponsor is literally there to sponsor you, to bring you along in the organisation. And that's really, really important. And I think probably the networks were more male based previously. So now we've got more women coming up through the ranks, but also men are more um, awakened and aware of diversity and and what good that can bring to business decision making. Um, So therefore, there's more proactive approaches to ensuring that there's a greater gender balance and and, and diversity. And how do people, just so listeners are clear, how do people in companies go about getting a sponsor to bring them along? Obviously, they need to prove themselves in some way to have potential. Yeah, so... I think you can, I suppose you, you get to know your organisation, you, you do, get yeah. to know the leaders um, and, and I suppose over time you're proving yourself, you're showing yourself as a competent, reliable um, contributor to the organisation's goals. And as Declan talked about earlier, you're developing relationships. So this is all, it's not networking, it's not transactional, it's a relationship. Got you. And yeah. you're committed to the organisation and by virtue of that person mentoring or sponsoring, yeah. but, ha- you know, having you in their mind when the decisions are being made, they're committed to your development within the organisation because you're part of that picture, you're part of that journey, you're part of the future. Yeah, I think um, the the rapport that you build and people need to be aware of that, that, you know, the person who uh, does that little bit more in the environment, in the office or whatever, that stays that little bit later when there's a bit of tension or a crisis or something like that, the upper echelon will appreciate that. And and then vice versa, that person will appreciate if that per, if that upper echelon, uh, you know, has a conversation with them from time to time and, and explains what they're doing. That's how it, that mentoring, informal mentoring, starts. So if it's so relationship based, is charisma 
a very important attribute to have to have a good chance of, you know, being sponsored or becoming a leader. Is charisma important for leadership? Um, it's charisma, like, and I can't remember the study, but you know, then you, when you say charisma, I think, is that an extrovert or an introvert? So then the mm, question is, so if point. you need to be an extrovert, does that mean, does charisma mean you're out there loud and raucous and, you know, bringing it? Or is it a quiet charisma that you're 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 fully committed to what you what you're setting out to do? And therefore, by being that commit and that passionate, maybe it's passion, actually. Or attitude. Or attitude. Yeah, that you have a magnetism passion. and it can be quiet. magnetism. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. And it can be an extroverted magnetism. But people are drawn to you and they, for some reason, believe in you. They believe what you say and they believe in you and they have a sense of potential. And sometimes that sense can be misplaced and sometimes not. But because you're making it sound like quite an organic process, I just wonder what the role of charisma is, because it, that what that brings us on to the question of is, can leadership be learned or is it an, an inherent thing that you've either got or you haven't got? What, what, you know, what do you think about that? So... Um I believe it can be learnt and I can't remember the statistic, but it is very high anyway in terms of developing our skills. But I think it's back to what we said earlier in terms of the webinar. It's about developing our self-awareness. Mm. And if you think about leadership, well, the way I think about leadership, you've got EQ, IQ and PQ, right? So e IQ is I know I'm the expert. I know my field. I um, I can be relied on for information. So and I've developed that competence. So even think about you talked about ad agencies there earlier. So the creative and, and all of that space. And then the EQ is the relationship piece. So I, I know myself. I know how I can interrelate with others and I can control myself so that I'm appropriate for the situation that I'm in. And therefore, I'm bringing people with me and meeting them where they are and making sure I'm getting that good kind of influence piece, not Machiavellian, but influence for, for good. And then the PQ to me is that profile piece. So it's um, how well am I known within the organization? What is the story that other tells that others tell about me when I'm not in the room? Hmm. Um, so that I'm my resonance around the organization or around my sector and what I do. So I'm building that up and therefore then I become um a, a go-to person or, or, or a name that pops up in conversation when we're trying to think of somebody to lead out on a new initiative. It's like, I saw Declan do or I saw Will do X. That he was really good or she was really good. And it's that. So it's that personal piece, that that profile. And a reputational management, if you like. Yeah, yeah, and it's the relationship building. So it's not, and I think, you know, people are challenged sometimes when they talk about networking because they think I must get out and get lots of business cards and, you know, you know, get to know lots mm. of people. But it's actually, you don't need to know lots of people. You just need to know a couple of good people. Yes. Have yeah. them in your corner because of the person you are and the engagement you have and the credibility that you're bringing with you. And then it flows. Totally. And just going back to the charisma thing in terms of that and linking it in with something that Orla was saying there about the reputational management, the, the PQ side of things. Somebody once said to me, be the first one to uh, design and disseminate your own propaganda and be the last one to believe it. And in That's a way, really the, 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 the <laughs> essence of the good charisma side of it, like when, when you say the charisma, it's a loaded term. We think of, you know, as you've said, somebody who kind of dominates the room with, with their, their laughter and chat. And that's one side of it. There, but there's a spectrum. And as you quietly said, as you appropriately said, the quiet person can project. I'm thinking of people who uh, have an interest in Gaelic football, Jim Gavin, the Dublin manager. And I, kn I knew Jim not that well, but he was the class ahead of me in the military college in the Corrupt. And he was always a very quiet guy, but I mean, he resonates a certain type of charisma that is uh, is uh, uh, was the glue for the Dublin team and their success. So 
it's about, do you know what it is too? It's about finding your style. You don't, you know, there, it's, there's no manual for this. Yeah, you can't just read, buy a book from WH Smith in the airport and <laughs> yeah. just adopt and someone else's. Or, or decide, yeah. oh, Michael O'Leary has been really successful. I'm going to, you can learn from his style, but you've got to find what's your style. So if you're a quiet, uh, not too demonstrative person, you know, trying to be voluble uh, is not going to work. It's not authentic. But if you um, but if you you look around at different styles, you will find what does work. And I just reminded, for those who who are interested in military history, Bernard Montgomery, the you know famous General Montgomery of the Second World War. He was a small, diminutive man, very fussy, but he created a huge rapport with his troops in the Second World War through little things. Emblem. He didn't wear the classic general's uniform. He wore the tanker's black beret and he wore uh, the, a, a flyer's um, sheepskin jacket when he was leading the troops in the desert. And it made him very enigmatic. It made him very, it, it, it stood him aside and he didn't look like the typical aristocratic general. And then you had General Patton on the other side, who was this, you know, nearly Trumpian, type character, you know, full of all kinds of outrageous statements, slapped a soldier in an aid station for, um, he had uh, suffered from shell shocking, accused him of cowardice, but still Patton had this bond with his troops. They called him old blood and guts. As somebody once said, um, was it uh, our blood and his guts? Uh, (laughs) But still people believed in him and he had this ability to galvanise sentiment and that's why the Allied leaders put him uh, in charge of rolling through, leading the troops to roll through swiftly occupied Europe once the invasion had occurred. So there's two very, there were two very different personalities and and they both had their own type of charisma. Orla, who are your um, leadership role models from business or from history? Um, I actually don't like that. I don't like that hero kind of question. Mm. Um, so I don't really have any. But what I admire are traits in people. But was there anyone growing up that you saw on telly or in the media and thought, yeah. I was probably more into pop stars, really. <laughs> but they're leaders in a way, aren't they? Because they take you along. that's charisma, isn't it? You know, we charisma. were all singing along with Kylie Minogue in the that's 1980s. Right, we we believed that we should be so lucky, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, right. But they are, they're, they're thought leaders, they're they opinion are. formers, they're yeah. influencers, yeah. you know, so sometimes in spite of themselves, you know. Yeah. So, and, and actually when you say that then, Bruce Springsteen comes into mind, the boss. Exactly, you there know? you go. So, yeah. uh, and, and I suppose, and then I'm, I'm kind of sitting here going, okay, so why would I, you know, why would I pick him out? And probably because of consistency. So there's a consistency to Bruce, you know what you're going to get, and there's an accessibility yeah. You know, people have experiences or they've met him or whatever it is, but he's accessible and um, and he's inspiring with his creative talent. So they're probably the three things. Um, so it's probably more looking at the person and and the kind of traits that they have that I'd admire. Can I throw one thing in there? Yeah. I totally agree. I think it's a great choice. And to use a word that you often use yourself for, he's authentic. Yes, There's is. nothing inauthentic about Bruce Springsteen. He is everything. What you see in the the tin is exactly you know what he is, and I think that's why he has held on to his fan. Apart from his talent as a singer and songwriter, but he is so genuine, and uh, you empathise with him because he empathises with people. Yes. Very true. Um, and you know, just to try and crystallise it, I'll ask both of you this, but all the first, what makes a great leader? Okay, what makes it great? <laughs> Actually, humility. And I think humility because you know you don't have all the answers and that you're only as good as the people around you because um, we all have our strengths 
And in order for us to actually move forward, we're going to have to rely on others um, and the humility of actually employing people who are better than you as well. So. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, I've I can say having managed people myself, I've, I've struggled with that because I've looked into their eyes and I've seen that need for certainty, for answers, you know, um, particularly in challenging situations it, that they'll look to you and you realize they they, they want to feel that you've got an answer or that you know everything. Yeah. And it's hard, actually, because we feel put in this position of leadership. It's hard to turn around to people and say either I don't know the answers or we're going to try something and I don't know what's going to happen, which is very often the case in the advertising world because yeah. every time we do a campaign, no idea <laughs> if it's going to fall flat on its face or be this huge viral success that will make us famous for the rest of our careers. It's usually something in between. Um and so how, you know, how do you help leaders to kind of deal with that? They're looking for a surety that will be all right. So I suppose what does that certainty actually mean and what does it mean for them? So as a leader, there is a sense of providing that space and that surety, yeah. even if you don't believe it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. But in order to protect the team and provide that direction, you need to create that, that safe space yeah. so that the team can work its magic to get to the end result. Yeah. Um, and that's why leadership is a very lonely place because, you know, if you're the CEO or if you're the project manager or whatever, you probably can't share a lot of the challenges that you're facing um, with the team because then you're introducing the uncertainty and, and people start to doubt that you can actually achieve what you want to achieve because there's so many things that could go wrong. Yeah, and you could undo all the good that you've done if you start to project uncertainty at the wrong time. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, so... I think it's that confidence and trusting in the process, trusting in your team, trusting in your people. And we talked about scanning the horizon and forecasting. So it's always looking to the future. Somebody talked about or used it, um, an example of leadership being running interference. Mm. So it's about removing the obstacles, running the interference. So to help the team actually get to the end goal. So while you might not be able to be sure you need to provide that that sense of surety for your team and certainty that you will get there. Mm, I think it's there might timing. look different. Sorry, definitely. Sorry, yeah, timing as well. Yeah. In that, as you were talking about that, there are it struck me as you move up the ladder in leadership, and you're at maybe at a more strategic level, and you've maybe you know you're at a CEO level, and you've got a number of people. On one hand, you've got to you you are the image of the company as well, and so you have to you know, project. Uh, and keep it simple, what the overall, what in military terms, they will talk about the commander's intent, you know, establishing what the commander's intent is, because everything flows from that. So a good CEO or a good general or a good, you know, somebody who's a good senior general manager uh, will have to be very clear about establishing the objective and creating an element of that certainty and creating, uh, even if they're unsure or they're, if it's a crisis, which is, you know, when you're one of the key things that I've often that I've learned by experience, and that I, when I'm advising others, I talk about in a crisis situation. Okay, there's a time and a place to stand back, do a quick estimate of the situation. But if you're the leader, very quickly you've got to establish some sort of forward momentum, because you lose the initiative, 
and you've got to engender a degree of confidence, even if you don't feel it. Now, that's a real important leadership skill that, you know, and, and the, the concept of what they talk about, the US Ranger School in Fort Benning have a statue of an infantry officer and he's looking back with his hand raised up and the, the, the caption on his statue is, follow me. And that's the concept of the Ranger officer, the Ranger soldier, that other soldiers follow them, that there's a certain, they're giving that certainty. Now, they don't know all the answers, but by projecting the certainty, they can cause the favourable outcome. I mean, battles aren't won because everybody knows all the answers. Battles are won because somebody created forward momentum, a sense of positive self-belief. And business gets over humps. People get from A to B. You're not going to, you know, if you're too risk averse, you'll get nowhere. Now, but let's look at the other side of the spectrum. If you're a, a leader at, you know, take again, military history, just to use it for a second, Eisenhower in the lead up to the D-Day landings, he had to rely and leverage all of his senior leaders. And at that stage, it was a different, these men didn't need momentum or, or certainty. They were confident in their own right. But Eisenhower needed their input to make the fundamental final decisions. Should he go? Should he not go? And then that was that was creating a different dynamic. He was able to say, well, I'm, I'm not sure here, guys. You know, I don't have the answers. I need I need to know what you think. So th- there's a sliding scale of, of, of time to use vulnerability and of time to use certainty. And I think it's confidence. So the leader has confidence that they know that that's, that's part of the toolkit that you have as a leader. The ability to be comfortable not knowing, the ability to know what you, do, what you know, what you can control and what you can't control. And then having trust in your team that they'll, the solution will be found. It, yes, communicating it with confidence, whether you're communicating certainty yeah. or uncertainty, essentially. But also agility, though, too. And we talked about that in the webinar as well. So if you think about you're shooting for a target, but to be flexible enough and agile enough to know that target might change. And so we might need to de-scope, re-scope, completely change what we're doing. So that ability to not be so fixed that I must hit that target, that actually the context with the, with with within which I'm working is changing. So scanning the environment, understanding it and adjusting and adapting as you go. And, and it, it seems to me that for people to respond to that positively, to take a step back, they need to already believe in you and they need to have, uh, they, they need to be on your mission and they need to have shared values, a shared why, um, you know, uh, you, you talk about Simon Sinek, he's very famous for Start With Why, a TED talk that made him famous in 2007 and become a very popular idea in the business world. Um, start with why. Take people on your mission, people who share your beliefs, people by why you do it, not what you do. And so how uh, how important are a leader's values and, and, and how can they communicate those without being a David Brent standing on the desk and telling everybody in a really cringeworthy way? You make me think of, isn't it, there's a famous uh, quote, I think, where John F. Kennedy asked the guy sweeping the floor in, was it Cape Canaveral or somewhere, you know, what, what, what was his job? And he said, I'm here to put a man on the moon. Mm. So it's that connectedness to the why that we're all part and, and we're all equally important in the final result. Um, but in terms of the values of the leader um, and the values of the organisation, I suppose, you see, we're all unique and we all have our own set of values and, you know, we have what's important to us. So I suppose, and it's back to that relationship building and connection piece, isn't it? So if I've got a shared value and I understand, and we talked about the Jahari window in the last piece, so 
opening ourselves up to being understood and for people to see what's important to us starts creating that connection. And as a leader, that's about that exposure and vulnerability piece so that people know what you stand for and they know that you'll have their back when the chips are down, because that's when it counts. That's a very good point, actually. It's about, um, yeah, so that they know what's important to you, what really matters to you and that you'll have, uh, that, yeah, you'll have their back. And, and sorry, well, as a leader, it's not just the words that you say, but it's the actions, it's the consistency, it's how you are every day from the small things to the big things. I, I think the actions and consistency bit are so true, you know. I mean, a leader has to be a very good communicator, but we should remember you only communicate, I think, what is it, 7 to 10 percent verbally. So yeah. you're, you're everything. I mean, I remember in the early days learning about uh, concepts of peacekeeping. And um, I think this was defined by um, the, the British military. Uh, posture, presence, profile. It's three things, the three Ps. So he's, and that, that turns, they, they are bywords I use in terms of leadership, awareness and training. Before you even open your mouth, before you even draft a document, what is your posture like? How is that perceived by the others? Because then that will denote the profile you have in the organization and you know, the, the, the presence that will be established uh, will be either seen as benign and people will buy into it or otherwise. So posture, presence and profile. And the other thing I would say that to add to that while we're on P words is avoiding displays of provocative weakness. People don't think about that. You can uh, engage in, you know, you could be chairing a meeting or whatever else and somebody could seek to undermine you in a, in a lateral way. Uh, what, an example of that could be they might be aware of your, of your buttons, uh, your, your psychological or tribal buttons, and they inadvertently or advertently press one and you lose your temper and you've just lost a chunk of power. And you have then made people realize you have feet of clay. Now, the thing is, you can uh, you can go around that if people if you make having feet of clay an awareness of you know embracing your vulnerability, but you have to be aware that if you don't control those things, you can display provocative weakness. And uh, and uh, and the dangers of provocative weakness is if you're trying to climb the ladder and if you're trying to harness a lot of disparate uh, outlooks. And of different people to get consensus. Provocative weakness can be used to undermine you. You know, that display can provoke a response, you know, a mini rebellion or just people start to disregard you. Your influence gets waned. Yeah. And, you, you know, you talk about how um, communication is only a part of it, verbal communication. When we think of leadership skills, we think of standing up in front of everyone at the all, the all hands monthly meeting that's that's the arena for leadership to take place. But you're right, it's as much about how you sign off an email and how you uh, stock the kitchen and whether or not your office door is open or whether or not you even have an office and how you dress. And it's all those small things, whether you talk to the cleaner and the receptionist and what have you. You know, and we're talking an awful lot about the leader, right? But there's a really mm. great clip called The First Follower. And a leader is only a leader when there's somebody following him, as you said. So, you know, for our li the listeners, you should check out First Follower because um, once you have somebody following you, that First Follower then encourages others to, to join. So it's a bit like the other concept in adaptive leadership is about the ally. So if you look at any <clears> of the movies, we talked about Moneyball um, in the webinar, you've got Brad Pitt and his ally was the statistician in Jadaville. You had well in the yeah in Jadaville or in the military world in general. What Orla says is so true because no officer 
can function well if they don't have a good non-commissioned officer or sergeant. And the Jadaval experience is that Pat Quinlan relied hugely on a man called Jack Prendergast, who was the company sergeant. So he was the pivot between the leadership and the men. And in every organisation, you will have people like that. And just as you said, first follower, that's what started to come into my head. The platoon sergeant, the sergeant major, uh, Monty Don, you know, the the famous gardener over in the UK, uh, visited here uh, some years ago and he talked about the sergeant major class, uh, the people who get things done. The people who are, again, that, that pivot, they have a lot of experience uh, and they, they lead by their experience and they're technical experts. And then the people who are in the more strategic levels of leadership, they have to rely on them. They're their first followers and they're the ones who get things done. And by their credibility, if they're willing to support you, then others underneath them say you're worth following. Just t- changing tack a bit, thinking back to your own careers and your own exercise of leadership skills, what are the biggest leadership mistakes you've made in your career, Orla? Um, I think being too emotionally connected with what's going on. So um, if I think about, and maybe, I, you know, I'd use that in terms of um, in trying to influence. So what is the phrase? If you start, if you have to explain, you're losing, yeah, isn't that if it? You're if you're explaining, you're losing. So in terms of, you know, if you're really passionate about what it is you're trying to achieve and you're trying to garner support, you know, catching myself being just the only one in the room that believes it and not being aware that other people aren't yet convinced I've lost. So that ability to separate that emotion, this is what we need to achieve. How do I achieve buy-in? What's in it for you to come on board with me to actually help get this over the line? And I'd go back to that concept of balcony and dance floor. That really sits with me. So you need to be on the dance floor to be passionate about it, but you need to be on the balcony to see how others are engaging with it. Yes, you need to put a slight freeze on your emotions and have a bit of a cold objectivity, don't you? It's a, that's, I think that's one of the key struggles of management is that um, balance between that cold objectivity. We have to dehumanise yourself and be a bit more analytical, a bit more robotic, perhaps a bit um, less human and emotional, but also simultaneously be with the people and emotionally connected to some degree, because if you do detach completely, then you kind of lost them. That's interesting. What about you, Declan? What's the biggest leadership mistake you've made in your career? Um, I think, well, I've made quite a few of them. And I think that they all uh, revolved around a, a key concept. And that was in my earlier days, yeah, and again, kind of, I suppose, coming back to my, my formation in the military, but also I think as a, a male of a certain era as well, my reaction, you heard me talk about the importance of forward momentum and the constantly wanting to develop the ability to, whatever, what's the situation, react, react, move forward. Uh, as you're doing that, you identify the threats. There's a threat, obliterate it. Get you know so somebody who then is engaging in some sort of what I identify as threatening or confrontational behaviour, my reaction was to confront it head on, and you know you know, you could go around it, you could go over it, but why do that when it's so much more fun to go through it, and that has its purpose and and usefulness, but. You get to a certain point, you have to be able to move beyond that. You have to become more rational. You have to become what you were just talking about, more detached and take the emotion out of things. And 
you know, what I was doing would work in some ways, but it also get me into unnecessary confrontation, particularly mm-hmm. with higher authority. And uh, what I'm fortunate about was that there were two key people in senior leadership ranks who didn't just take me to one side to talk to me about the error of my ways, because I was probably too pig-headed for that to work. They just demonstrated the error of my ways. They, 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 their approach and their attitude to me, where they didn't undermine me, but uh, and I began to see. I remember one, he's a retired uh, general now, um, Jim Sanderson is his name, Sandy, he was known as a lovely man, very clever, very adaptable guy. One day he said to me, you know, you catch more, what did he, what, let me get the phrase right, you catch more bees with honey rather than vinegar. You, know, you don't have to be on, uh, uh, you know, assault the whole time. And he himself, I, he was a very effective guy in the Balkans back in the 90s. And this just shows you sometimes how you can adapt. He wasn't in a classic military role out there. He was on attachment to our Department of Foreign Affairs. And there were a number of EU officers abducted by the Serbs, including an Irish officer, Jim Fitzgibbon. Uh, there were uh, Irish, Spanish, I think British, whatever else. And we all, everybody thought they were dead because their per- armoured personnel carrier was found burnt out as if a missile had hit it. And Sandy was on the ground out there. And through a series of networks and lateral communication, all very unusual for it, it, to be associated with the military. But in the Irish experience, we, because we're small, we've learned to be very adaptable. And he leveraged all his contacts, all his knowledge. He had credibility back with the organisation at home. So when there was huge pressure on the organisation to admit that Jim Fitzgibbon was dead, Sandy's credibility said, no, hold the line, we don't believe he's dead, and he was proved right. And it, it, it was a lesson that I learnt a lot from being involved in that process because... The huge pressure that was on the organisation to say that this man was dead and then to maybe walk away from it. And they were being held, they were sequestered. And the Ser- and it was, about, it was about communication. The Serbs wanted somebody to open negotiations with them, but uh, nobody knew how to plug into that. So there was a whole lot of different things came out of that. And it all was around that one particular man, Jim Sanderson. And I learned a lot of lessons out of that. And it made me a different man, a little bit more... Uh, more of a thinking man and more a little bit more detached and cooler in how I dealt with crisis. A bit more circumspect. Sir, that's the word I was <laughs> looking for, Will. Well done, thank you. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and with yourself, Orla, um, you know, what are the specific challenges that you've found rising to leadership in the workplace as a woman in what has undoubtedly been a series of male-dominated organisations, I would imagine? I suppose I never really thought about it, if I'm going to be honest. I did engineering, so there was 20 girls and 100 guys in the class. So it never really was something I thought about. I always thought if you were the best person for the job, now that might have been naive, right? <laughs> and now as I've gone through my career, you can see you've got the 30% club, you've got um, building business for better boards, you've got lots of great initiatives. So, And I suppose in terms of role models, there weren't very, very many female role models there. Although I worked in the States and in Australia and there were female partners there. And um, and so I probably would have had them as role models without realising it because they were I could aspire. They were in the role that was, you know, leading the law or it was Coopers and Lybrand as they were then in, in L.A. And she was an inspirational woman. She led that whole practice and it was amazing to watch. And you just think that's something I can achieve. So it actually, I suppose, opened up the opportunity to say, well, actually, there's a woman in that role and I can achieve that. So um, sometimes without thinking about it too much, just the pure fact that that exists, it just exactly. shows that it's a possible thing. That's it. It's that possibility. And you used it before. I think you, you talked about the word potential. So it's, you know, believing in your own potential, 
but also having others to believe in it. And then, as you said, the fact that somebody occupies a, a senior leadership role, the possibility is there. And what's the predicament of a woman entering the job market today or certainly the management roles today? Is, is, or is it a, an even, is it a level playing field? Um, I think it's a lot better than it was. I think um, I would say that probably the work-life balance piece, and that's not just for women, it's for men also, um, has greatly improved. So to me, I think in terms of our careers, I mean, we're going to be working for a long time and we wanted to have a healthy relationship with our work environment. And in order to do that, then we need to respect the um, the draws on people's time, personal time in terms of commitment to family or, you know, caring for elderly parents or children or whatever it might be. So I'm not a big fan of talking about men and women. I, I kind of just think we're, we're all the same. But I do think for me, it's there's more role models. If you I mean, there's plenty of studies out there that show the pyramid and, you know, show that women tend to leave, say, kind of middle to senior management. And and then, you know, but I think organizations have recognized that and it's more back to getting diversity back into the corporate world or to the business world so that we're making better decisions. So I think it, there's a lot more openness and opportunity now for for women and men to come back into the workforce if they've left it for a period of time. I mean, we're certainly better at accommodating people's different life stages, children, parents, you know, remote working, flexible hours, um, indeed. But um, I suppose, what advice would you give a 30-year-old woman entering a management role today? Um, I was actually at a 30% club event yesterday and I think the key message I took away was put yourself forward, put your hand up. Mm. Um, and so it's I, a confidence, do you think it's a confidence issue? I don't know if it's a confidence issue or is it because sometimes, and, and this could be considered stereotypical, but I have seen it and I know I do it myself, I need to have 90% of the competencies to go forward for the role. Whereas a guy might have 30% of the competencies and think I'm already doing that job. So I think it's it's that we don't need to have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Just go for it. You're absolutely right. And I think one phrase that comes to mind, fake it till you make it. Oh, yeah. Big now, time. And just to put a bit of context, I'm not talking about it in a glib way where uh, you know, oh, being a chancellor will get you everywhere. But we all know that... Uh, you learn as you go along. And if you have, and certainly I, this is a key lesson I learned from a, a particular mentor, that uh, get in there, have a go, be confident in yourself and, and listen and learn and learn from those around you. And that's one of the essence, essences of uh, learning for leadership that, uh, that the, the military, I think, teach a lot of people where they're, they're trying to get young people to take on roles that they're in command of people that are older than them. So there has to be a degree of, of bravado, a little bit, you know, and come, but, but tempered with that you learn from people and you listen to people. So coming back to Orla's point, if you're waiting till you have all the competencies, you won't have them because some of those competencies you'll only get by doing, having a go, making a mistake, and maybe you'll fail. But to paraphrase Beckett, try again fail again, fail better, move forward. I mean, that's always been my modus operandi in my career is not trying to get the job I can do, but trying to get the job I'm pretty sure I can do. Yeah. And I'll find out when I start doing yeah. it. But I think that's the, you know, you look down down the job description and you go, yeah, I, I can do that. I'll be able to work out how to do that. Because if you can already do it all, there's not, not going to be a very good exactly. job at developing 
you as a person, is yeah. it? You know, precisely. It's not a you know, people that come that are fortunate enough maybe to come. You, the society is much more um, fluid now. Thankfully, you're never going to get rid of hierarchy, but make the boundaries more, um, more uh, fluid, more uh, maneuverable. I think that's the important thing. But one of the thing people who come from the traditional. Uh, leadership classes or aristocratic class or whatever. I had the pleasure of, of uh, getting to study with a chap who came from uh, an English background where he'd gone to Eton. Uh, and that famous you know, public school where Prince Harry and Prince William went, I think. And, and I was saying to him, what, what do you think was the key thing? And he said, it's not that people came out of there. This guy was very self-aware for quite a young man. He said, it's not that people were particularly brilliant or any more brilliant than anyone else. But there was two things that the school used to do. One was they imbued you with a huge sense of, of confidence in yourself. And how did they do that? Because they constantly helped you find things that you were good at. And you might be crap at academics. So maybe stamp collecting was your big thing, or you were a sports guy, or you were whatever. And they focused on that. And you developed an attitude which, at its most simplistic, could be defined as, well, if I'm able to do this so well, well, then how bad could geometry be? And you mightn't do brilliantly in it, but you did enough to pass. Whereas some of my experience when I was younger in my schooling was an obsession with, oh, you know, you're you're good at history, but you're not good enough at maths. Oh, you're going to you're not you're going to fail maths, and this and you end up with a bit of a complex. And I think maybe this is something that has happened uh, in in with women as well that they were it was emphasised how good they you have to be better than better, and that that could create a hesitancy that am I ready for this yet? Mm. Whereas you're better off just have a goal. Have a goal, give it your best shot, learn from it. If it works out, great, capitalise on it. If it doesn't work out, don't start beating yourself up about it. You know, move forward. And this is the thing that I learned from that particular chap who went to Eton. He had great self-confidence, not overweening. It was, he was a very pleasant fellow. But it took, he was a great, people gravitated towards him. He didn't know everything uh, and he learnt as he went along, but he never pulled back from an opportunity. Interesting. That's fascinating. Um, well, our time is almost up, I'm afraid. And what, uh, oh lots of <laughs> yeah, lots of very interesting insight. I suppose just to end, I'd love to hear just briefly. You know, this topic of leadership, which is becoming talked about more. What does the future hold for the topic? Where's it going? Do you think? Oh wow. Um, well, I suppose I feel like I'm at the start of my journey in learning about it. Because, you know, we talked earlier about how, you know, how did you learn about leadership and learned by doing. So um, I, I, I just think it's going to keep going. I, I you know, I, I think there's there's a great level of discovery about us as human beings, about how we interact, about how we operate, about how we can improve um, what we do and how we relate and our efficiencies and all of that kind of makes sense of a machine like. But, you know, I think it's a great le- I think there's great discovery still to be had. So I think there's great opportunity to keep learning. Yeah, and I think also the concept of leadership is changing as society evolves. So, like so many things, so many variations, uh, you know, uh, of things that have become areas for formal study. And so, I think what you're seeing is that there are so many other things now that there is an element of leadership brought into. I mean, if you're training people to be social care assistants, there's an element of leadership, awareness, and and uh, development in that as well. Uh, in areas, what I'm saying, I suppose, is that would not be traditionally associated with that because we realise leadership functions at so many different levels. And then there are the aspects of leadership in a social context, in the family. How do we parent? How do we, you know, what's our role 
in in our family uh, we may have children and be parents we may have elderly parents and how you adapt you've got to change your role if you're the parent with young kids and then you're the adult child of elderly parents you've got to adapt your situation in one you're very obviously the leader in the other maybe they're older and they're become more reliant on you but you're still the kid so you have to be clever at how you lead and the re- I, I, that's in my head a friend of mine um he, he was a classmate in the military college, Liam Toland, who was uh, quite a good rugby player in his day. He writes, writes on rugby. But Liam also was involved in um, in his other career in running a business for home care for elderly people. And in a conversation, he talked to me about how a lot of his job is advising you know, frustrated, very clever professional people who have elderly parents and how to manage the process of looking after them, where sometimes they go in in a didactic way and say, you need, uh, Mm. you need, you're not able to look after yourself. You've got to go into a home. And the parent says, go to hell. What do you know about it, junior? And, uh, and of course, nothing gets done. The objective doesn't get achieved. And maybe they don't need to go into a home. Maybe the thing is, can, but but the point is, how do you approach it? If you realise that in this situation, my relationship is junior. So if I'm going to lead, it has to be through a very informal lateral process, if I'm going to lead change and thought here. So that awareness starts a process that is much more likelihood of success in that situation. Maybe add into what Declan said, you're making me think of the fact that I, I think it to me, it's like a journey of discovery. And so the more we bring different uh, schools of thought together, the more we unlock, I suppose, greater thinking or a greater level of um, awareness, our mindset, you know, all of that. So um, so I think the more we unpack of what's going on in the world and the more we bring all these theories together, the more insights we're going to gain. Um, in terms of ourselves, our leadership and how we deal with the, the future because it's unknown. And hopefully this podcast is just part of that uh, <laughs> process of us looking at these things in more detail and getting more clarity on them, which you have so um, eloquently brought to the topic. And thank you so much, Ola and Declan, for that. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about transforming your marketing career through certified online training, head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com. Thanks for listening.